drop. Hey there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, the director of StoryFort, and you're listening to StoryFort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, a weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though this March we were postponed until September of 2020, and now we have been rescheduled for September of 2021. But nonetheless, we're here on this podcast to tell you about all things Tree Fort. Today, we have a really cool guest, one of my favorite musicians and writers, Willie Vlotten. And Willie Vlotten was a front man of Richmond Fontaine, and he's with the band The D-Lines, but he also has five novels out there in the world. You have The Free, Motel Life, Lean on Pete, don't skip out on me and North Line. And Larry Rosen and myself sit down and talk about writing, about life, about Reno, about dive bars, about the romance of the downtrodden. And we get to listen to five really cool songs too. So enjoy Willie and Larry and myself and hope you're doing well, staying safe. And we're thinking about you. We're hanging in there up here in Boise, Idaho. And hey, here's our episode. All right, should we start this thing? Yeah. Story Ford aficionados, Tree Ford aficionados, we are blessed today to have with us musician writer or, or, or author musician. I'm not sure which, which order to put it in. Uh, Story Ford participant, Willie Vlotten. Willie, thanks for coming on the Story Ford Presents Voices of Tree Ford Music Fest podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So before we, I know you brought some songs along today that we're going to listen to and talk about, but before we get into that, I feel like, you know, every time we have a writer on the podcast lately, we have to talk about what they've been doing for the last five months. And I think your situation is even more interesting because for a writer being, you know, stuck at home and being quarantined, isn't that big of a deal because you're basically, that's your job is to be quarantined. You sit in a room by yourself and you're right. But for a musician in a band, how are you handling that? How are you, how are you, I know you guys have a tour scheduled for early next year in Europe. Is that going to happen? And have you had to cancel dates and how are you keeping music going right now? Yeah, well, I got lucky in the fact that uh, the Delines is a band I'm in, and um, this was kind of an off year for us because we were working on a new record, and we recorded, I think, nine nine of the tunes um, before COVID, and and we were only touring a couple times, so we lost a couple tours this year, and I lost a bunch of book touring this year, and then next year, I you know the way it's looking, I don't, I can't see them letting us into Europe. Um, so I'm not sure uh, when we'll tour again, uh, but we're going to record again in um, September to finish the record. And this will be the first time we've, we've all gotten together. Um, me and one of the guys and the producer of the record, uh, we go to the studio, um, but it's been slow going. Everybody's kind of like on half time and a little weary of, uh, you know, I think at first they're weary of being in public and then they're wary of uh, – 
of it. And then they, they're just tired as hell of being at home and then they kind of give in. And so we started working on the record again. Um, but yeah, as far as the writer part, I mean, it's great. This is the longest I've been home in 20 years. Usually I spend my life getting about halfway into a novel and then I have to quit it and tour. And then I come home and I'm all rattled and tired. And then I have to kind of heal up from that and, and then figure out where I was with the book. And then I start going again. And then I get about three quarters of the way through it. And then I have to tour again. And it's a never ending cycle of starting and stopping. Um, so this is the first time I've ever just gotten to write, uh, you know, and, and I do, I live in the country, so I, I just, I leave the news off and, um, and so I don't get super depressed every day like my friends who live in, in the city who have to, you know, deal with it every day. Have you been going into your office, in, which is kind of in the city? Yeah, you know, I do. Uh, I start going a little stir crazy out, out here and I have an office in uh, St. John's in Portland, which is about a half hour away from where I live. And uh, and I just go like I used to, <laughs> the reason I like it is. I, I work on a block that has four bars, a movie theater, and like a really good taqueria. And and the, the bars are all are old old men bars. And um, but now I can't, you know, I don't go to any of that stuff. I just go to my office and like boy in the bubble and just look out my window at all all the people that are outside. But I don't really, I'm no man. I just haven't really messed around with that uh, with going out or anything. Yeah, everyone seems to have a different level of comfort on how much they're willing to risk being around other people. Um, That's true, and it, and it also depends. Like, I have been hanging out with two, uh, like I, I said earlier, the producer of our record and, and one of the guys in my band, and, and they they have varying levels. So you kind of just rise to what rise or fall to whatever level they're at. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys has really bad asthma and elderly parents um, that he's in contact with. So, so I just... I'm just careful because I don't want to screw that guy up. Right, right. Yeah. And then my wife's parents are really uh, are getting older too, and so we see them. And I don't, I just don't want to be the guy that uh, lets anybody down that way, mm-hmm. if possible, anyway. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be the guy who brought COVID to his small town. That's for sure. Yeah, or to your in-laws or your your close friends' parents, or you know, yeah, or whoever. Yeah. How's it looking? How's life uh, in Scapoose, by the way? Do you see my aunt and uncle? Um, <laughs> so. No, yeah, I couldn't hear that, man. I'm sorry. Oh, that's how's life in Scapoose? Well, you know, like I said, I, we can't really see our neighbors. In, uh, in, uh, we're five miles out and surrounded by trees. So, you know, Scapoose is uh, it's just kind of like a road stop, really. It has a huge Fred Meyer and a, and a yeah. pretty nice library. And that's not a whole lot else going on. Um, so it's fine, man. I mean, this is a great time of year to be in the Northwest, and, and I have a new dog, so I'm I'm pretty content at home. That's cool. Well, gonna, by the way, Larry is, um, and his wife are going to be – they're future Oregonians. Or they they are future Oregonians. Oregonians, yep. <clears throat> oh, yeah, you were saying Southern Oregon. Yeah, outside of Ashland, we bought a place. Yeah, the um, singer and, and the Delines uh, has lived in Ashland for the last, geez, I think, year, year and a half. Oh, really? So how, how, yeah, does that, yeah. how does that work for you guys? Does she just come up when you record? Yeah, she used to live in Austin, Texas, and then um, her, her, her and her whole family moved up to, uh, to Ashland, and then she, yeah, she just drives up. Uh, we're mostly just a touring band, so uh, touring and recording, so she'll come up and do the session and then go home and then 
she'll come up uh, for rehearsals for for a tour and then she'll head out uh, from Portland with us and do the tour and then everybody kind of goes four winds uh, when we get home from tour. Do you, do you let, let's let's clarify your role in the Delines because for uh, how 22 years for Richmond Fontaine? You were yeah, something like that. Yeah, I was the, yeah. the front guy. Front guy, um, songwriter. So are you writing the songs? I read somewhere that you do write the music for Delines, or is it just lyrics or both? Both. Um, yeah, you know, uh, yeah, I did Rich and Fontaine for 20-odd years, and I just, you know, as I got older, I, I think as you get older, you stop doing the things that really kind of haunt you or you just give up on things. And <laughs> I never liked being in the front. I just always wrote songs and I could sing the songs I wrote. Um, but uh, Amy uh, Boone, the singer from the Delines, she toured with Rich and Fontaine as a singer and a uh, keyboard player once. And, and we'd known her band, the Damnations, which are, were an amazing sister, uh, Austin, Texas kind of cow punk band. Um, and we toured with them once or twice. I can't remember. And um, became friends. And then she did a tour with us and, when she was warming up, like before the gigs, or we were doing a radio show once, and she was warming up playing this old kind of soul country ballad, and I I was standing with the guitar player Richard Fontaine, and I just said, Jesus, wouldn't it be nice to be in a band with a singer like that? And he looked at me and he goes, Jesus, I wish I was in a band with a singer like that. And uh, when I heard her like that, then I went home and secretly wrote her a, a record. And and then kind of wrote her a thesis on why she should join up with me and start this new band and uh, and that was at the line so I retired uh, um, Rich and Fontaine and a couple of the guys from Fontaine yeah. came over with me and and then we were just doing this more kind of ballad band and and I've always liked writing ballads more than rock tunes and I really wanted to not be in front of people anymore and and um. And she's so such a great, cool singer, and uh, so we just kind of, I just kind of write songs for her to sing and about things that uh, that she talks about, and I just pick up lines of things she says or conversations we have, and then then oh. I I write a batch of tunes and find out which ones she likes and which ones work, and we go so from there. That, and you brought your rhythm section along with you. Yeah, I mean, Sean Oldham is I've, I've played with him since '99, and. I mean, the guys, besides being one of the coolest drummers um, and like, you know, he was like a jazz drummer that flew too close to the ground and started playing with rock bands just for fun. <laughs> and uh, we were just drinking buddies. And that's kind of why he stuck with us. Um, it's just for fun. And uh, besides, you know, and then Freddie Trujillo is, is a bass player I've always wanted to play with. And he came into Rich and Fontaine later on. Hmm. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it's a really cool band and a guy named Corey Gray is kind of the hot shot genius musician of, of the group. And he's a trumpet player and a keyboard player. And he, he, um, arranges all the horns and on our new record, we have a lot of strings and he arranges all that. So it's, it's fun for me, uh, cause I get to write ballads. Um, you know, and since I was a kid, I, I've, I've just written ballads and, and then I, I make myself write rock songs. But I'm a ballad guy. Yeah, well, now's a good time. Now's a good time. Um, we're going to play some of Willie's music for you. Um, and the first one we're going to hear is a uh, of ballads. I would call this a ballad, but knocking around. Would you call this a ballad, Willie? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a folk song. It's a song that never made a record. Uh, it's a song I like, uh, um, but it never quite fit a record of Richard Fontaine's. And um, so I thought it, it might be a good song here. Um, it's it's just one of my many uh, kind of uh, folk sad ballads that uh, I guess I think I had too many of those kind of tunes uh, for the record it was trying to get on. Well, here it is, knocking around, and we'll come back and talk some more with Willie in a minute. I heard he lived once in Spokane. Why well, I'm not sure why. Someone said they saw him washing dishes at a place called Night. Kid, I think that was in Lafayette. Left them one night with a paycheck and a worn out CV. The only time he was down and out was in Bisbee. Spent two weeks in a hospital before he was released I know he went through the women Well, I know that's true He was desperately kind and he'd abandon them out of the blue Found him in an alley in Helena, Montana. He was four to six and for years had just been knocking around. Who tried to take her own life And after that he quit his job And took up the drifting life If you got close to anyone A weight sat down on his back He could only take it so long before he just collapsed They found him in an alley In Helena, Montana oh, He was four to six And for years it had just been knocking around He was four to six And for years it just been knocking What an amazing song, Willie. Um, how long ago did you write that, Knocking Around? Oh, man, that that one, you know, I don't really write songs 
that I sing anymore. So I guess that would be four or five years ago I wrote wrote it. And I've always I, I always like the imagery of that one and the sadness of that guy. Um, it was just yeah. it was just a record that I I'd written a bunch of uh, kind of beat up uh, narratives, you know, little folk songs, and and that one just didn't quite quite fit fit the record. But so, it's always been kind of one of my favorites. So is there a chance a song like that you could rework and have it become a Deline song? You know, not if, not for her. I wouldn't want her to sing that. But uh, you know, I just it's it's fun for me because I can write uh, more romantic tunes i can write more kind of soul based tunes i've always really been a fan of soul ballads and um but i the way my voice is and my confidence level i don't have a ton of confidence uh and i just could never sing those kind of songs i just didn't have the courage to do it but with her i can so so generally i write write tend to write bigger songs and not such like beat up guy songs yeah she she's a belter much yeah she's just cool she uh, the thing i like about her voice is it's it's real sweet and real weary uh, weary and kind of like uh uh like she's been around the block um and i believe her um i believe her when i hear her voice i just kind of believe whatever she's singing and um and i really like her i mean as a person she's one of the, the the cooler people i've met so it sounds like there's there's i was i was wondering this when i listened to that song before there's there's no chance there's going to be a Willie Blotton solo career. I don't think so, not unless I, I go through a lot of therapy and uh, <laughs> you know shock therapy to uh, make myself want to do uh, be in front of people. Uh, so probably not. Uh, probably not. So with so interesting. So you said a couple times you, you have an unease with being in front of people. Yet you've kind of made a career at least half of halfway out of being in front of people. You had also said that. Unfortunately, you got a lot of um, or some uh, writer tour dates canceled because of COVID. Now, I would think that you'd be kind of bummed out about that because there's, you know, there was momentum for Don't Skip Out on Me after you got, uh, you were a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. And I bet those tour dates were probably trying to build on that. So were you disappointed because of the momentum or pleased because you don't like going in front of people that those dates were canceled? I mean, it's tough. I mean, for being in a band, you just like, like as a kid, I, I was so shy. I could barely, I mean, I could barely go to school. It was really difficult for me. Um, just, you just go to the, go to school or go to a store or anything like that. Um, so in a way being in, but I, but, but I wanted to be in a band so bad because I, I just loved music so much and I believed in songs. Um, and I, and I was a fan not to be a rock star, but, I just believed in the power of them to make you disappear from who you were and where you were. Um, and I just wanted to do that. And and then, so in a weird way, being in a band cured me of being so shy because you have to, you know, you have to play in front of people if you want to be a real band, you know, uh, at least that's what I thought. So, you know, at 16, 17, I'd be playing in bars and I'd be shit faced uh, just so I could stand up and and do it. But it, but it taught me how, how to be in front of people. Books, on the other hand, I, I love the grunt work of writing, um, and I love the work ethic of writing novels. Um, and I love the novels, whether they're good or not, I have no idea, but, but I love them personally. And, um, and so doing dates for books is really fun because I feel like I'm like helping out a pal of mine. Um, 
on the on the road. So I never mind book gigs. Plus, they usually put you in nicer hotel rooms, and you don't have to do anything except talk about books. Uh, so I I like it. So I get bummed out uh, because I'm uh, about missing gigs because I'm just scared that I'm going to have to get a real job. And uh, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing and and not have to get a job. And so I get scared that way, but, but, you know, but in general, I don't mind missing gigs if, uh, if, if I, to get out of, of being in front of people, of course, but, but, you know, to, to, to promote a book or stay alive in the, in it, I, you know, I'll do gigs till, till the cows come home. And, and how was it getting nominated while being a finalist for Penn Faulkner? Was that a complete shock, a semi shock, or did, were, were you aware that it might happen? I think that kind of stuff is a shock because you just don't know. It's, I mean, it's a crapshoot um, who the judges are and and why they pick y- your book. Um, the way I look at anything that, that nice that happens is is the, my first uh, reaction is, ah, maybe they'll take my next book then. Oh, maybe this little bump will help me stay alive in the game a little bit longer. So, so that's all I think about when with awards. I mean, of course, you want to win. That kind of stuff, because then you're like, well, they definitely I could probably give them a really weird book next and and a really dark book and they'll probably take it. Uh, and that's when I that's when I would risk sending them a really dark book. Yes. But other than that, I don't really think about it, except, it, you know, makes you feel good about yourself. And uh, you get a, I got a couple free dinners and a, and a trip to uh, Washington, D.C. So I was cool. Hmm. That is cool. And it, it, is a really dark book something you aspire to write? No, man, that's just where my head is. I, yeah. I have like a, uh, I have my knocking around like that song uh, side of me, and then, which you know some people like, but it's an acquired taste. Uh, and then I, I try to write more on the lighter side of my head. Um, but I have, I do have books that are darker. That you know, it's just a. You know, not a lot of people want to go to some of these stories. And so, you know, I just kind of pick and choose uh, to see which story I should put out. Yeah, Larry mentioned in our conversation, I think, yesterday, just, uh, like, I can't believe that Willie, he does that to his poor character. Sometimes <laughs> he puts him in a, in a tough spot. So, yeah, but I've heard you say Yeah, I, mean, I do put, I do, I forget, you know, because I know what's going to happen. So I do put, I oftentimes put him in tough spots. But I know they're going to get out, uh, or most of them anyway. But yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, life beats you up. I mean, so uh, my characters get beat up too. Well, we're thinking about another song, um, the D lines, um, and am I pronouncing that right? Is it the D lines or the Delines or the Delines or how do you say it? Delines, yeah, but it doesn't, you know, whatever. Okay. And where does that? Let me do a, a little origin story. Where did that uh, band name come from? Um, I mean, it's kind of silly, uh, for years, I, you know, I grew up in, in Reno, Nevada and, uh, and then about 10 years ago, I started having reoccurring dreams that I, I would visit this part of Reno that didn't exist. And, and there was all these clubs and, and I would just walk around all these clubs, uh, all night in my dreams. And they, and they, I'd have it like three or four nights a week for years. And they, and they're all tremendous dreams. And one night I was playing in one of those clubs and they were all old, kind of grand, like 1930s clubs. And one night I was playing with the the guys from the Delines, and Amy was singing, and um, and on the drum it said the Delines. And then I just woke up from that, and and 
it was a hard sell on, <laughs> on the band, but no one else had any better ideas. And, uh, and I was like, look, we were playing a fancy club. We all wore suits and, uh, and it said the Delines. And so now we all wear suits and dress up and, uh, and, uh, and we're the Delines. That's the vision right That's there. Awesome. We're going to hear the Imperial. With the title track off the last album. Title track, yes. Which we know about. Yeah, and this is a, uh, so this is a Amy singing, and um, I, I really like this song. It's, again, it's a, you know, it's a, it's narrative, and so it has that kind of folk lyric stylings to it, but it's kind of a soul, kind of a country soul vibe to it.
Others have treated you wicked I can see it in your eyes And I don't know what to do So let's have one last drink Hold my hand under the table before I leave Can we talk about Reno a little bit? Because you you write about it seems to be a pretty big anchor in in your life and your persona and who you are. Um, and and it, would you say it, is it fair to say it's not always in a in a in a positive way, or is it in a positive way? Well, it just depends. I mean, I've had people in Reno be mad at me for writing about Reno the way I do, but then. But then when I ask him, have you been to that part of town? Um, like one lady got mad at me uh, saying I should write about the football team, UNR. Um, and Chris Alt, who's the, like a, a famous kind of football coach. Yeah. And she goes, why don't you write about that? Why do you write about uh, these bad parts of town that, you know, that are probably, you're probably exaggerating. And I said, look, at when's the last time? You've been down Forest Street, which is now improving, but was a pretty rough street when I was talking to this lady. And she goes, oh, I would never drive down that street. <laughs> so it's it's kind of the same thing I had with uh, uh, when I wrote about horse racing. You know, uh, people would say like, oh, it's not really like that. And I would say, when's the last time you've been to Portland Meadows? And they said, I didn't even know there was a track there. I would, um, But I would. Reno, uh, uh, I like what I like. You know, I'm a little dented. I've always liked... Uh, like rougher kind of side of town. It just makes me feel better. Um, I always loved the, the, the nightlife of Reno and Reno had a, you know, kind of before there was a ton of just straight up homelessness in tent cities. Reno had a lot of drifter men. So when I was growing up, there would just be, if you walked around downtown, there'd be literally hundreds of just kind of like alcoholic beat up men kind of rambling about and living in motels. And as a kid, you think it's really romantic. And then as I got in high school, I, I was like, man, I'm going to end up like that. So I might as well 
figure out what it's like. Uh, and so I started hanging out in that kind of environment. Um, because of course I did think it was romantic. You know, when you're young, you think a 30 year old or a 50 year old guy that, you know, doesn't work and lives in a motel and, and drinks his life away is kind of tough and cool. And then as you get older, you, you know, you st- you're trying your hardest to run away from being like that because that way life's in your blood by then. Um, so, uh, you know, I lived there till I was 27 and, uh, and then I was, you know, in, in kind of failed bands uh, for years, and uh, and I knew I had to go to a big city to to be in a real band, like a touring act. Um, and so I moved to Portland, which was like the largest, least scary big city in the West. And right and I and I was a worked at a trucking company, and they transferred me to Portland. I, yeah, that sort of surprised me because I would think that a Reno person would automatically come to San Francisco because it's the closest big city. It is, but it's so expensive. And, um, you know, in Portland, you know, I, I rented a two bedroom house, uh, for nothing and that had a basement that I, I could practice in. And there was a ton of bars to play in, but my early novels are set in Reno because I was so homesick and I saw my vacations. I went home to, to Reno and I used to just stay at this casino called the Fitzgerald for like a week at a time. And, um, just so I could be around Reno, uh, because I loved it so much, you know, and, uh, but, but I was, you know, I, I came from a really conservative family that my mom really didn't like what I was doing. So I didn't stay at home, but I missed Reno and, and I just couldn't get anything going there. So I had to move away. So that's interesting because all the things you love about it, it sounds like are the things people don't want to talk about. Well, that's just what I like. You know, I, I, you know, I feel that I just feel more at ease when, when it's, a little dented and um and i like that part of town now as you, as you get older obviously i can't i you know i stay out of the old man bars and i try to you know i try to keep a lid on it and 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 all that but but when i, I was young there it was that self-destructive tendency um and that hopelessness kind of vibe of those guys it made sense to me you know i didn't have a lot in common with any of those guys uh obviously uh but it just made me feel more comfortable well it's funny when you're a young guy visiting an old man bar you're visiting when you're an old man at an old man bar you live there <laughs> yeah and when you're when you're like you know 30 and doing the same thing that's when mm-hmm. i think i was around 33 i was like jesus man i don't want to be these guys they've they've ruined their life they did they've done nothing but uh like that replacement song grown old in a bar and uh and i you know i didn't want to do that so you know i always i've always had a you know half of me was was trying to uh live inside that kind of world and half of me was running for it and that's i guess the my books show that and um and my life's been that way i'm um, half of me really wants to to run away from that and be all right. And the other half of me is like, you know, what's the point? And I'm going to just hang out and give up, you know? And so I guess that battle in between is, is kind of what, where my, my books live. Well, fortunately, yeah, your, your books do, but they don't live in a, in a way that, that aggrandizes it or romanticizes it. I was thinking as you were talking in how many young men like yourself and, and me to some degree and Christian wind to some degree, could potentially be ruined by Charles Bukowski who made that sound, that life sound like the most fun thing in the entire world. Yeah. I always thought of him um, in the same light as uh, Ian Fleming, uh, James Bond. 
I mean, they're both they're both romantic, and they're both it's a fantasy that you can't get. I mean, uh, Charles Bukowski. I, m- I remember I remember talking to this kid when I was in Reno, and uh, and I said, "Well, what are you gonna do?" There was a couple guys, you know. There was always the guys that wanted to drink like Bukowski so they could write. And I was always like, no, man, you got to write. And, and if you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but you got to actually sit there. And I was talking to this one kid once in Reno and I go, what are you going to do this summer? Cause we were taking a night, night writing class at Uni- university of Nevada, Reno. And I go, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to work on? He said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to take heroin. Um, and be, so I can be like, uh, William S. Burroughs. And so I can write good this summer. Oh man! And I was like, "Christ, man, you're a maniac." You haven't—he hadn't written anything the whole whole class we were in. And I'm like, "Man, even even the dumb shit like me knows he, the only way to write is to sit in a chair and and write stories." And uh, and you know, all all alcohol and drugs do is they make you so manic and so edgy and so on the the cliff that that you might write good for a while because you're in such pain. But in general, uh, you don't get any work done because you're just too busy. Yeah. At first, being hungover, and second, just being mentally out there. It's not going to be super lucid. That that made me think. Yeah. I don't know if it was a guy that you knew, but I remember reading someone in my early twenties who said he was determined to get himself arrested because he had to be in jail because that was part of his life as a young writer. I can't remember why. Yeah. Was you knew, but and I just thought, well, that's dumb. I do not recall, but uh, maybe it was Calvin. It might have been Calvin. Yeah, yeah I mean, I've spent my whole life trying to. I just, uh, I, I, I guess I spent my whole life trying to be normal. So I've been kind of running the other way. Uh, but you know, I just read like Mark Lanigan's memoir, the 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 singer for the Screaming Trees, and you know, brilliant singer songwriter. And I mean, I mean, it's a horrific tale of drug abuse. Yeah. And, and and how low it goes. And you know a lot of people are just still going to read that and think, man, if I take as many drugs as, as he does, I'm going to have a voice like he, he does. And and you're like, no, nah, man, he got lucky with the voice. Uh, maybe this, some of those songs come from that pain, but but uh, but don't take the bait, you know. Don't well, take the bait. Well, that, that's an interesting point to bring up because, I mean, I think maybe some of the art comes from the pain, but so do the drugs. I mean, he wasn't taking drugs for kicks, I don't think. And no, I, you're right. It's a, it's kind of a double edge. Like you drink because you're depressed, and then you're hungover, and you're depressed and fragile, and uh, it all kind of is like a uh, in a blender that you can't really get out of. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I guess in in, in terms of pain it helps but but really most guys you ever like charles bukowski would have written uh if he didn't like drinking he would have written about something else i mean he was just one of those guys who just sat in a chair and 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 wrote a lot of really cool some really great some not so great stories um and but he had the work ethic uh of it uh and drinking doesn't you know obviously uh He's a writer who drank a lot, uh, but drinking a lot doesn't make you sit in a chair. And I mean, makes you sit in a chair and watch TV, man. And you could argue too, and maybe if he hadn't drank, he would have been able to write more than one story because all that stuff. I read it all when I was in college, and it was the same story over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and some guys do. I mean, you know, I just was rereading Carver, who I really liked growing up, and he's always been. And it reminded me too much of of 
of my childhood. A lot of Carver stuff really hits home on a lot of themes of mine. But but like he wrote the same story over and over too, um, from all different angles and you know different points of view. But uh, but maybe every every writer does. Uh, well, that- I mean, I I have my themes. I seem to hit on. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that's a case of someone who's just trying to work something out? Yeah. I mean, I would guess so. I mean, I've written stories where where I go like, man, I'm not going to, there's not going to be a, there's going to be a good dad in it. There's going to be this and that and that. And then after about two years of editing it and, and just letting your heart be your heart, you start realizing you've changed it all the way back to, to the kind of stories that feel good in your blood, but are similar to other stories you've written. So, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everybody's haunted by everybody's got their own set of scars and dents and, and things that haunt them. And, and, and I think that does come back in your stories, even if you don't really know it's there, uh, you, you kind of secretly put it in there without your, without you even knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's what you're thinking of. Yeah, I agree. Uh, are we ready for another song? I was going to say, I think it's time for song number three. With a character named Holly Hustle. Uh, so tell us about Yeah, Holly the Hustle. There was, Holly the Hustle. There, and this was a song that almost didn't make the record. And, and it was one of like the sick kid songs where you're you're trying to nurse it back and uh, hoping it'll be good. And then the the producer figured out the, the horns and uh, Corey Gray, the, the trumpet player, figured out the horns and um, and yeah, the, you know, I, I spent 10 years at Portland Meadows. Um, just, I was a handicapper, like not a great gambler, but I just liked it. I wrote a lot of stories out there cause no one, no one was out there at the time. And, and I love horses. Um, and I saw this kid kind of grow up from like, she's a, they call them track rats where, uh, they just kind of grow up at the track, uh, whether they're their family, someone either works at the track or, or has horses or works as a trainer. Um, their kids just kind of hang out there all day. And, uh, I watched this kid go from, you know, like a cute little kid to by 13, 14 dressing really provocatively. And then by 18, she was hanging out with, you know, 30 year old dudes. And, uh, it was just really sad to watch this sweet little kid turn into this kind of like, yeah, I didn't know what she was doing, but it, you know, when it's 16, 17 year old kids hanging out with a 30, 40 year old guy, it's generally not the best outcome. No. So that's where that song came from. Yes. <laughs> that is the conventional wisdom. But anyway, here is Holly the hustle. Dad bred quarter horses that would never win. Her mother left them when she wasn't even ten. He sold their place and then they got by following the racer game. She cried herself to sleep She begged her dad To take them back to their valley To her mother and the cottonwood trees Their old house And her horse lazy Gave her wine coolers by 
Yeah, Holly the Hustle, pretty amazing, Willie. Thanks for that one. Um, and that was a D-Line song. Um, yeah, the Amy sings really good on that one, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, yeah, Larry, go for it. So, Willie, I, I know nothing about horse racing other than that it is another one of those things that it seemed like cool guys were involved with. Hmm. Um, and, to, and I learned a lot reading Lean on Pete and, and watching the movie, which I want to talk about in a second. Um, don't know that much about boxing either. Learn a little bit about, you know, entry level boxing from don't skip out on me. When you're writing about things that a lot of people don't know about, do you see it as an opportunity to show them that world? Or are you thinking I'm writing a story that happens to take place in this world? I mean, Lena P for me was, so I got into horse racing because, because I was a shitty gambler in, in Reno. Um, I, I cashed my paycheck every Friday at this at this casino called the Calneva, and at the time um, there was this bouffant like fifty five year old woman that was really pretty sexy and and kind of sassy, and she and I would flirt, and if I flirted with her in the right way, she'd give me like a dozen free drinks and two free breakfasts, and then a, and a, and then a token to to play a slot that I could win free dinner or or my paycheck. And so I used to cash my paychecks there and then I would drink the tokens away, uh, the drink tokes. And, and then I'd go, what's the point, man? I made it you know, under around 200 bucks a week working at a trucking company. And I said, man, I could win 400 if I, if I put it on black on roulette. And so I lost my paycheck. I had three or four times and, you know, over the course of a few years. And I was so disgusted with myself that I said, well, and my buddies all were chronic, um, sports gamblers and uh and and so i said you know what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna just bet horses because horses take forever i didn't know anything about it and i love i love watching horses run and so when all my other buddies were playing 21 or or uh uh craps or betting on sports i just i just bet horses and um that's and then when i moved to portland i was so homesick the only place that reminded me of reno was portland meadows so I started hanging out there three, four days a week, uh, just so I wouldn't, wouldn't move home. And, um, and then, you know, I got really into it and, um, for about, yeah, like, I guess about 10 years where I, that's all I did is I went to tracks. Uh, we would do tours around where I could go to certain tracks and, um, and I just loved it. And then I got a crush on a jockey and I got a crush on a couple of horses and then you start realizing how dangerous it is and then I became friends with a jockey and she was telling me how much uh she got hurt and how little money she made and and then I I started investigating where these three thousand dollar horses were disappearing to and they just would get sold either for rendering or or uh for meat or for uh for some worse track somewhere and uh, so Lena Pete's really just me breaking up with horse racing. Mm. Uh, I got disgusted with myself uh, for for betting on it. Um, I, I, I right now I have a Portland Meadows race horse uh, right. at my house. I have three horses, um, so I, I I gave it up. And as far as boxing, I just always liked boxing, and uh, um, I grew up watching boxing. I was at the tail end of where boxing was kind of normal and mainstream, and as a kid. 
I mean, that kid, uh, Horace Hopper and, and Don't Skip Out of Me, so beat up. I thought if you could be anybody, being a super tough Mexican boxer would be the safest and coolest thing to be. Um, and that's why I picked that. Okay. And tell us a little bit about when they made Lean on Pete into a movie. You've had two. You've had two books made into movies, haven't you? Was, was Motel Life? Made yeah. Into I mean, really, if if you don't take it seriously, uh, it's really fun. I mean, Lean on Pete was was a pleasure because Andrew Haig, the director, was he's just a really cool guy and he's really smart and he tried really hard. Um, and I mean, he shot it in Oregon and he got Portland Meadows. He he was smart enough to get Portland Meadows to say yes to it, and uh, which I thought was amazing that they would do that. And, um, uh, so it's fun, you know, it's the same thing. It's a ride. If you don't take it serious, um, it's just really fun. It, it helps pay a couple bills and, um, you get some free dinners out of it and you get to hang out with people that, uh, that like books and movies and, uh, and, and art, you know, uh, that's one thing I've learned about movie people is they love it all and they really do love it. So, uh, it, it's, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I actually heard that director. I forget what podcast it was on, but he was talking about hanging out with you and how you showed him. Kind of, he—he's not. Was he English, maybe, or he was from the East Coast? Yeah, he's English. Yeah. Yeah, him and his partner came out to uh, um, to stayed with me for for a week, and and then I showed him around the track, and and he actually did the whole track of that Charlie does. He went to every single place that Charlie went to, and hmm. I mean, he's just a cool guy, man, and like he's just a naturally really cool guy and smart guy. And he, you know, anybody that, that tries hard, um, on something that you're, that you wrote, uh, I mean, I'm really honored and, and, uh, and you just don't want him to fail. You're like, God, I hope he doesn't pick. I hope it wasn't the biggest mistake of his life to pick my story. I hope my story can hold up and, and, and bring him good luck. Um, like it had me. Um, but yeah, he's a cool guy. And the motel life was the same. It was just, you know, a documented Reno at a time when Reno was really changing. Um, and, uh, so it, I got to, you know, they filmed in all the places I used to go to as a kid and, and the bars I used to go to. And, and, um, so it was really lucky because all, nearly all those places are gone now, except for a couple, I guess. What I thought was interesting when I heard that director was that he was so, enamored of the American West and he felt like you had really shown him the American West and you know and you were a person of the West and and I think I, I mean I think that's fairly true that that's who you are and how you're perceived do you think of yourself that way I mean I just re you know I I'm a junkie for movies set in the West uh and the romance of the West mm -hmm. I guess uh so I just really, you know, it's like horse racing or boxing or, or uh, you know, uh, living on a ranch in the middle of Nevada. Uh, my stories are set in Reno. Um, it's just because I love those places. If you're going to be alone in a room for a few years and nobody might like the book, it might be a failed one. So I want to be around things I love. Uh, so I just write about the places I love mm -hmm. and that I'm interested in. Um, you know, and don't skip out of me. I picked Tucson for where the kid lands. Tucson's not known as a boxing town, it, but I just love Tucson. I love the music out of Tucson. That was, that was and kind so of I, if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to spend years of my life somewhere, uh, 
that's what I do. So that's why they're all set in the West just because I grew up driving around the West and I grew up uh, being hammered into me that the West is the most beautiful place in the world and by my mom and uh, her boyfriend and my dad. Uh, um, so that's where that comes from. Yeah, I actually thought it was set in Tucson. That was kind of the point, that it wasn't a boxing mecca, and you went there. Exactly. Yeah, it is. I was going to set in Albuquerque, which is a better, a little better boxing town, but but, but, uh, but I was like, man, I can think about all the great bands like Giant Sand and Calexico uh, that have come out of Tucson. If I, if I go down to Tucson and hang out there, then, then my kid can, can be in that world too, uh, you know, just be in Tucson or um, somehow – I could think about uh, Calexico and Giant Sand, and and so, you know, that's that's why I uh, said it there. Cool. Well, it's time for another song. Time for another song. Um, the kid from Belmont Street, um, the pretty great. You know, I would call it also on the the ballad in the ballad spectrum. It's, it's got a also very much a, very, a story song, which you do so well, Willie. But maybe tell us a little bit about this. Well, this this one we recorded in Tucson at Wave Lab, where uh, you know Calexico and, and Giant Sand did some records there, and Calexico did a lot of records there. A lot of uh, cool bands uh, have come through. Nico Case did a, a really amazing record there, um, and so we went went down um, there. Uh, and kid from Belmont Street, I guess when you're talking themes within me, um, that's one of them. Which is, you know, I was walking down the street in Portland and. And I would always see this kid and, you you know, like when you see someone that just hits you um, and it was just a kid that you could tell was um, didn't have a good home life, didn't fit in anywhere, was just kind of like staring at the ground, uh, didn't his clothes weren't clean. He had long hair, not in a cool way. Uh, he was just he was a really beat up little guy and it used to break, you know, break my heart to see him because I understood that. You know, when you see someone like that, that that you connect with, it it's because it, it hits a vein, it hits somewhere dark or heavy inside you. And and uh, and I knew who that kid was, and uh, I used to see him all the time. <laughs> He's one of those guys you wanted to kidnap and you know, like take care of and make sure he got out all right, because uh, you didn't, you could see he was probably not going to get it out of out of this life very good. Right. Um, and yeah. so that's where that song came from. And and the good news on this one is the trumpet player. Um, is from Calexico uh, yeah. and uh, he did a really amazing job
for someone Just have to wait Listening to you describe the genesis of that song uh, made me think about sort of the powers of observation. And it seems like in your in your everyday life, it seems like you spend a lot of time looking at people and watching them and getting inspired and thinking about you know where they are and where they came from and what they're doing. Uh, would you say that's true? And if so, ha- has it been hard then being in your house for the last five months? I mean, I do, I guess generally I, I do like watching people. Uh, I like seeing, you know, like what they buy and <laughs> what they drink and, and how they live their life and what they think's cool. And, um, uh, so yeah, I guess I do. And I do, I have to admit, I'm more interested and maybe it's, it's because of where, how I live and, and the things I've seen, but I've been more interested in working class people and people that are a little rough around the edges. I, I, I would guess because that's kind of the neighborhoods and places I've lived is in my adult life. Um, and just that's what interests me and, and the kind of people I, I guess I, I hang around. Um, as far as, as hanging out with people, you know, uh, I guess it's weird because I don't really miss it because it, it just gives me time to, to write my stories at home. Um, and I'm getting a lot more work done and not, messing around so much bullshitting with people um and and sitting in a bar bullshitting and wasting time i'm just kind of just working uh uh but yeah yeah i like i like uh i like talking to my my saint john's people every day uh, when i go to my office and i don't do that anymore so i don't know man sitting in the bar i'm too scared 
Sitting in a bar wasting time sounds pretty good to me right about now. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've done that enough. I I, I try not to do that. I, yeah, <laughs> we already we already gone over that one. Hmm. Um. Shoot. Oh, I know what I was going to ask. Duh. Simple question. So you mentioned a few times that now you finally have the chance to sit down uninterrupted and work on something. So, all right. What is it that you're working on now? Is it a full length you're working on or something else? Yeah. You know, I've been working on two things. I'm, I'm writing a novel about, uh, house painters about, uh, set in St. John's, the part of Portland where I hang out, uh, um, that I've, I've, I wrote a short story, a couple of years back about uh, called the kill switch. And I always liked those characters. So I wrote a novel based around them. It's, it's, it's really similar in theme, I guess. Uh, it was a comfort novel and it's just about, uh, uh, two alcoholic house painters. And one of them lives, uh, next to a really beat up kid, like the kid from Belmont street. And he kind of saves him. Uh, so it's right. It's definitely, I wrote it as a comfort novel, uh, for right now. So I said to myself, man, you can write about anything you want. And so that's what I chose. And now I'm, I, I, I wrote a draft of that and put it to bed for a while before I started tinkering on it. Cause I tinker on stuff for years. And then, um, and now I'm working on one about the life of a casino musician. He's an old man. He's like 80 years old and I'm, I'm writing his life story. And I'm guessing when you write about a casino musician, you're talking about a casino musician in Reno, not Las Vegas. Yeah, I'm I'm talking about a guy that grew up like playing in high school and in 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 his 20s, 30s, 40s uh in casinos and then in the around MTV that people stopped caring about live bands and they just wanted to see videos. And so they kind of start phasing out bands and putting in big screens and then they, you know, then karaoke came and then it just became less emphasis on live music. And so it's just about a, a like a working musician about his life story. Um, and it's really fun to write, man. It's really fun. Uh, whether or not either, either of these uh, make it, I don't know, but uh, that's what I, what I've been working on. And the kill switch, uh, you had released that as sort of an audio short story, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, for fun, I, I'll record it, uh, like the audiobook version and then I put music and write songs around it. And the lines we had, uh, our singer, uh, Amy got hit by a car and, um, she was down and out for three years, uh, almost three years, um, really got beat up. Uh, it's just horrific. And, uh, so to keep us together, I just try to think of things for us to do. And, um, so they did the soundtrack <laughs> to it, to a audio, a short story, audio book. And I spent so much time on the short story and in the the music of it that I fell in love with the characters. Um, and so I wrote a whole novel around them. Didn't you, didn't you write at least one song about brothers or cousins painting houses? I can't remember. Yeah. I wrote one called, I fell into painting houses in, in Phoenix. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was a house painter for 10 years, so I, I guess that's why I write painters. Uh, um, but yeah, that was about, it was off a Rich and Fontaine record and it's, it's about, um, a guy that's a house painter and his boss hires illegals and then doesn't pay him. Um, and, and so he quits the job and he's just telling the story of how he worked with the guy. And then they were supposed to pick him up the next morning and he was supposed to work that day and get paid. And they didn't pick him up and they, they just went to a different part of Phoenix and, um, where this, where the song's based out of, uh, or the stories out of, um, and they just don't pick him up and they just start another job in a different part of town. And just about the powerlessness of, of, of working class guys that are illegals. 
Well, it seems like with the kill switch, a, 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 an audio book with a soundtrack. I don't know if anyone's doing that. Are they? <laughs> They're probably not as dumb as me. No, I mean, I mean I, I've done three of them uh, like that, and I love doing it. And, uh, you know, and I mean, I put two soundtracks to like Northline, my novel. I had a soundtrack that came with it. And then with Don't Skip Out on Me, there was yeah. a download for a soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I just like doing it because, you know, I spent two years editing the thing. Uh, you know, I might spend a year writing it and then a couple years editing it. And then, um, and during which time I write a lot of tunes. And so, like with for Don't Skip Out on Me, um, it was the last Richmond Fontaine record, and we'd never made an instrumental record. And I'd, I'd always wanted to make an instrumental record. And and I wanted to make a like a really cool pedal steel record, and uh, um, and so the guys finally at the end of the band they're like, okay, we can do that now, and um, and so I wrote all these tunes. They kind of fit big scenes and and don't skip out on me, and um, and it was just the most fun ever. But whether it makes sense, and it's definitely. Uh, Money wise, it doesn't make sense to do it, but uh, uh, but I never really care about shit like that. And uh, I just wanted a soundtrack with that book because I loved Horace Hopper more than anything. And the old man, Mr. Reese, uh, I loved him and I thought they deserved the soundtrack. And it was so such a big uh, desert landscape in that novel. And I just kind of wanted it, the, the, the world to not just be in the book, but to be in music as well. Well, nice. well, that's going to be actually our last song, too, in a, in a minute here. Um, I believe Meeting Billy in El Paso is is it from the song you were just referring to, Willie? Yeah, yeah, it's from the, the, the novel uh, soundtrack. And Meeting Billy in El Paso is when Horace Hopper, he he fights in um, in El Paso, and then he hitches a, he's waiting for a bus, for the bus station to open so he can get back. Um, to Tucson and he meets this guy named Billy um, and they just have a conversation and it's just kind of the soundtrack to, to their conversation. I think that's fantastic. It brings both sides of you together, the musician and the author. Yeah, I mean, I really, I really like it. It's my most, you know, it's the, the only Richard Fontaine record I listen, I can listen to because um, it doesn't have my voice on it. So I've actually listened to it for fun uh, because I love uh, Paul Brainerd, the pedal steel player. I love his playing so much um, that I miss it and I miss hanging out with him. And so I'll put that record on sometimes just so I can hear him play. And, uh, and you know, it's all the melodies I, I wrote. So they're melodies that I think are cool anyway. So they, the melodies bring me comfort and, and make me think of Horace Hopper. And then I get to hear the, you know, really good band. Uh, those guys are great players. And then, you know, Paul Brainerd, uh, putting his, you know, he's one of my favorite steel players. So it, it was a pretty lucky session. Nice. Well, before we go into that, then, we want to thank you for coming by today uh, and spending some time with us. And I'm crossing my fingers to get you back to Story Fort one of these years. And, uh, oh, I'd love to. I mean, I love Story Fort. And I, gosh, I hope you guys get to, to do it this year. Um, it's so hard to know what's, what's going to happen as far as is gigs and that kind of thing. It seems like gigs are going to be the last thing to come back. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, and so hopefully the, the tree fort is such a great festival and, and story for to, to be a part of it and to promote literature. is just great. Yeah. We've loved having you for sure. Um, and yeah, we're, we're scheduled for September of 2021 now. I don't know if you saw that, but, uh, got over a year. That seems like a, that seems like a pretty safe bet. I hope, I hope it works. Yeah, Jeez, I hope it does. 
Oh, oh, if the world hasn't ended by then. But, uh, and also, yeah, I mean, we, we'd love to have you back um, at Storyport anytime. And I know that you guys, the D-Lines were all slated to play Treeport uh, the year before last. And then yeah. I think um, her accident, you know, the car accident kind of, kind of threw over. Yeah, we thought she would be better by then. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where she had nine surgeries and um, you would think she was back. And then, you know, she finished the Imperial. She could barely walk. And um, and we kind of had to help her. And then I think we thought uh, we could start touring quicker than we could. And, uh, you know, it took, I think, in all said, three years. And she, the very first big tour we did for the Delines in Europe, I mean, she could barely, she had to use a cane and, you know, uh, could barely walk. She's tough as shit. And now she's doing, she's doing really well. She won't be jogging in a, in a marathon, but she's, she's doing really well. That's yeah. great to hear. Well, we're going to go to meeting Billy in El Paso, but yeah, thanks so much. I think we're just going to end on that too, but uh, huge thanks, Willie, for being a part of this podcast. Oh, thanks for the questions and for having me. Absolutely. Right. Um, and we'll have uh, Willie's website where you can purchase some of his music, some of his books, some of his uh, music and books together. And um, we'll have that up in our show notes. So. That was Willie Vladen, everybody. Thanks, Willie. Sure. Hey, uh, it's nice talking to you guys. And um, uh, good luck and, and uh, stay safe and sound. All right. You too.
So, okay. That was our episode. Thank you so much to Willie Vlotten and to Larry Rosen for being on this podcast with myself. It was super fun. We want to thank Up Is The Down Is The for our awesome theme music. We want to thank Eavesdrop Studios, who helps produce all these awesome podcasts with us. Um, for us, really, you can find out more about what they do at ease-drop.com. Also, we want to thank Treefort. And you can find out about all things Treefort at treefortmusicfest.com, including a really cool way to be part owner in the fest with a WeFunder cool program we've got going. So check that out. We want to thank all of you for listening. We hope you're safe and well. Remember, you can find out more about good old Willie Blotton at willieblotton.com and pick up some of his awesome music there. It's all along with some merch. And, hey, hopefully Willie will be at uh, Tree Fort and Story Fort 2021. But in the meantime, we'll keep making these podcasts. And then in September of 2021, we shall see you at the fest. Take care. Tomorrow never came